you have your Bibles with you, uh, if please turn with me to Galatians chapter two. Galatians chapter two. We're going to be looking just at one verse, uh, verse twenty. And as you do that, let me introduce the big idea of our message this morning, which is about the crucified life, which has already been mentioned. Last week, if you were with us, we uh, conducted a survey of the cross that led us into the the communion table from Galatians 6.14, if you'll remember. It was there that Paul said, but may it never be that I should boast in the cross except, uh, I should never boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And this week, we expand or extend uh, and continue uh, with that theme by looking at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And it is there that Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, But this life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. uh, Do I have it on the screen? I can't see it from here. No, not yet, but that's okay. So in introducing this subject, I take us to a a very popular writer, A.W. Tozer. How many of you have read anything by you? Then you know what a blessing he is uh, to Christianity uh, in the last century. A.W. Tozer um, introduced us to the crucified life, and he did, did it this way, and this is a quote. A variety of phrases have been used since apostolic days to define this subject, crucified life. Phrases such as the deeper life, the higher life, the holy sanctified life, the spirit-filled life, the victorious Christian life, and the exchanged life. He said, but after looking at some of the literature produced on this topic, none seems to be any deeper, higher, holier, or more spirit-filled than uh, common Christianity. For some, the phrase seems to be merely a catchphrase. He said, what I mean by the crucified life is a life wholly given over to the Lord in absolute humility and obedience, a sacrifice pleasing to the Lord. Further, he said, the crucified life is a life absolutely committed to following after Jesus Christ, to be more like him, to think like him, to act like him, and to love like him. The whole essence of spiritual perfection or completion has everything to do with Jesus Christ. Not with rules and regulations, not with how we dress or what we do or do not do. We are not to look like each other. We are all to look like Christ. We can all get caught up, he said, in the nuances of religion, and and we can miss that glorious joy of following after Christ. Whatever hinders us in our journey must be dealt a death blow. It was the Apostle Paul who emphasized this point in Romans chapter 6. If you want to turn there with me, I'm just going to read a few verses. Paul emphasized this point when he said in Verse 3, do you not know that all of us, and I want you to, as I read the passage, notice how many 
times death is and crucifixion is mentioned in, in this verse. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his, what? Death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. In order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. I love the way these are put together. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Paul said also, in, back in Galatians, I'm going to go back there, but in Galatians 5, uh, verse 24, he said, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And he would be referring to the wicked passions and desires there, unbiblical ones. And that, if you notice the tense of that, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified. It's a past tense. But he also said in um, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 31, I die daily. So it goes on for the rest of our lives. Question, how do we do that? How do we, in obedience, bring to pass what Paul said in Ephesians 4.22 when he said that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. How do we put off that old life and put on the new life that imitates the, the life of Christ every day? It, well, I, friends, I have to just tell you, it can only begin in one place. And that is in an unwavering commitment to honor God by an unceasing remembrance of His glory. I say that again, please. The only, play, the only way that we can get to that point of putting off the old and putting off the new is when we make an unwavering commitment to honor God by an unceasing remembrance of His glory. It's a commitment to never forget the proclamation that was made by uh, uh, King David way back in 1 Chronicles 29. Listen to the words that he chose when he, when he went into worship and prayer before God to acknowledge who he is. He said, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, Thine is the dominion, O Lord, and Thou dost exalt Thyself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from Thee, and Thou dost rule over all. And in Thy hand is power and might, and it lies in Thy hand to make great and to strengthen everyone to strengthen us for this task of putting off the old and putting on the new. The strength to live the crucified life comes from never forgetting the unique greatness of our God and also 
the, his goodness toward us, toward we who have been called out of, the, out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his eternal light. The word greatness that David used, thine, O Lord, is the greatness, refers to the transcendence of God. This is God on his throne in Revelation 4 and 5. This is God who is different from man. This is God who is always higher than man. What did he say in Isaiah 55, verse 8? Let me read it to you. God higher than man. God speaking, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is God who is not like man. He made us like him, but he's not like us. He's so much higher than us. This is God who created the heavens and rules the heaven and earth every second, every minute, every hour, every day, every year. This is God that allows um, uh, 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 us to understand him, but never completely capture him in terms of our perspective, our human concepts, because he possesses attributes of majesty. That's another word that David used in 1 Chronicles 29. He allows himself to be understood, but never completely captured by human imagination. Here's a thought for you. If you could possibly understand all that God is, would he still be God to you? No. Much higher than man. Not like us. We can't capture him with our human concepts. He is so much higher than that. We don't have access to these aspects or attributes of him that are of his greatness. Why? Because they are things that make him exclusively who he is. And so what are some of these attributes? Well, they're attributes that he won't share with us. He is, number one, he's spirit. So he is invisible. This is an invisible God. No less powerful, but invisible. He's not composed of matter, so he does not possess a physical nature. That's not true of us, of course. We can only be in one place at one time, but he is not limited in that way. So it's possible for him to be present everywhere. He is the source of his own existence. Think about that. He's the source of his own eternal life. Can you get to that? Can you get your mind around that? He is the self-existent God uncreated. There never was a time when he wasn't. There will never be a time when he isn't. He is living at this moment. He has a name. And you can have a personal relationship with him on that basis, creature to creator. What a magnificent God we have. An invisible God, uh, one who is self-existence and, and is the reason for his own existence. Not only that, but he is infinite. There is no limit to him. He is unlimited and unlimitable. You can't limit him, and there is no limit to him in space and time. In his immensity, he created space and time. He stands outside of space and time, and yet he works in space and time to bring about his perfect eternal plan. Is that impressive to you? I get excited when I think about that, because we are all in that plan. 
Are we not? He's also all-knowing. He knows everything that there is to know. There never was a time when he did not know everything, nor will there ever be a time when he does not know everything before it happens and the result of it before it happens. He is never surprised by anything because he knows things at any, per, any precise moment in time. <sighs> Give me a minute. <laughs> this is so thrilling. This is so thrilling, and it's a, it's a, I, I, we're only halfway through these things, but it's a message that the church not just needs to hear, but over and over and over, so that we don't get uh, swayed, we don't get pulled away, we don't get uh, distracted by the ways of the world around us and get so focused on things that don't seem to be going quite well, or some things do, and so we end up being on the, on the end of that, that yo-yo string going up and down. No, remember our God. Remember who he is. He is omniscient. He is infinite. He is the source of his own existence. He is spirit. He's also everywhere present, as we mentioned. Jeremiah quoted God as saying, am I not a God at hand and not far off? That is just a rhetorical way of saying he is both near and far at the same moment in time. He is transcendent and he is imminent. He's there and he's here. So nowhere in creation is God inaccessible. And as the saying goes, goes, he is everywhere, but he's not anywhere specifically, exclusively. We know he is all powerful. Genesis 17, we're told that uh, there is nothing that he cannot do that agrees with his own purposes, which is beyond our comprehension. We don't know the per- total purposes of God and how he directs it day by day in the, in the universe. He said, I am God Almighty. It was Jeremiah who proclaimed, Ah, oh, Lord God, and that, that ah, that Lord God, that is, is in, the, in the Hebrew, it's kind of like this word, hene, behold, oh Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and thy outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for thee. And it was Jesus that told his disciples, with God all things are possible. And in Luke 1.37, it was the angel Gabriel talking to Mary, and he told her, he said, Mary, you can imagine Mary's consternation. Mary, you're, you're a virgin, but you're going to conceive. You're going to have a child. How can this be, Lord? Gabriel's response was, nothing will be impossible with God. He is unchangeable. He, is, he said simply in Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. What does that mean? It means he never increases. He never decreases. He is always the same. We can depend upon that. He is perfectly constant in all of his being and in all of his ways. What did James say? There is no variation or shifting shadow with him. Oh, my friends, are we reminded of this incredible, majestic God of greatness? These are all attributes of that. He is spirit. He's the source of his own life and existence. He's infinite, omniscient, omnipresent, all-powerful, and unchangeable. Wow. But I want to tell you, all those things being attributes of his greatness, well, actually comes as a form of a question. Can you trust a God like that? Yeah, you can. Um, Would you be willing to crucify yourself to follow him? and exalt his glory. I would, I have, I do to the best of my ability. I'm sure that's true with 
all of us. But I want to tell you there's more. There's more to his attributes, more to the virtues of our great God. There is a beautiful, softer side that endears us to him for life. King David also said in that passage I read from 1 Chronicles 29, 11, he said, good things come from God. He said, it, it, it is in your hand to make it strong, to, to strengthen us. In other words, God shares a part of his moral attributes. He shares a part of them with us and he expects us and desires for us to live according to them. Why? Because they all rested in Jesus to the fully extent possible and it glorifies God when we become conformed to the image of our Christ. These good things fall into basically three groups. The first group is the purity of God. And there are three sub-portions to that. He is holy completely sinless. He is righteous. Everything he does, thinks, and says is right, which is our moral standard for right living. And he is just. And you know, you don't find his justice in the law books. It's the opposite. All the law books in the world, if they were all put into one library, would never come close to an understanding or a comprehension of what divine justice is. And it doesn't just happen today or tomorrow in a courtroom. It will happen in the end when all justice will be meted out. So we can be content knowing that the moral attribute of God he, uh, is, is such that he is holy, he's, he's righteous, and he's just now expects us and desires that we replicate those things to the best of our ability. So we don't want to throw away our law books, right? But it's a wonderful thing to think that, that these are available to us as we go about trying to dedicate ourselves to imitating our Lord Jesus Christ in these same ways. Um, you know, the, um, the, it is the truth that Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.15. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all of your behavior, because it is written, God said, I am holy, therefore you be holy. That's the idea of the moral attributes of God coming to us. The ideas of greatness, God saves for himself. But the goodness of God, the other side of his moral nature, are, are, are what he does give to us and asks us to replicate them. So that's purity. There's also integrity. These are the moral attributes relating to truth. God is a genuine God. He wants us to be genuine Christians, the real thing. He always tells the truth. So he wants us always to be truthful as well. He also is a faithful God. And so he wants us to live by faith in all of our ways. What did Paul say in Galatians 2.20? And this life that I now live in the flesh, I live by what? Faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. So we have the moral attributes that come to us from the throne. We have purity, we have integrity, and we have love. John was, the apostle John was very clear about this part of God's nature. He simply said, God is love. He didn't say that, just say that God loves. God is love, personified 
And we cannot find any deeper, purer, or more enduring love than his. And so we love him because he first loved us, yes? Jeremiah said in in 31.3, he said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have loved you with an everlasting love. But the other half of that verse says this, Therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness. It is his love when it reached down and it touched your heart and my heart through the message of the word of God, through the spirit of the holy God and, uh, and, and the word and God's desire to draw us into this kingdom of light. And so we are drawn with his loving kindness. And the difference between love and loving kindness is one is the nature of God himself But the other one, loving kindness, is the action of that love as it worked in our minds and hearts and drew us into his church. And that's why we should always love his church and participate in his church. Come to worship in his church. Come to fellowship in his church. And have this time together that is so important on his special day. You know, one fascinating thought worthy of our contemplation is that all of these attributes of God's glory are perfectly combined in one being, unified, synchronized, and then presented to the world as the power in a master plan that's going somewhere. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, uh, who was it? Henry Ford who said, life is just one silly thing after another. Like it's all out of control. It just happens when it happens. He might have said it a little differently. I might have cleaned it up a little bit. But he, did, he may have said that, well, that just is the way sometimes the world thinks. Well, life is just one thing happening or another. You never know which way it's going to go. It's going to go left, it's going to go right or up or down. Friends, I want to tell you something, that is not the case. History is not just one thing happening after another by coincidence, nor is it circular. A lot of people think, well, it's just, you know, it's just always, I don't know what the term is, but it just keeps coming around and repeating itself over and over. No. It's coming from somewhere, and it's going somewhere according to God's direction. Now, there may be little circles on it, but it's, it has a beginning in, in terms of our perception in history, and it has an end. It's linear. There is a purpose behind it, which is salvation for those who would believe. That's God's love at work. And so the crucified life then follows that, and the glory, the glory always goes to God. And when you fit the operation of all God's attributes, the ones of of his greatness and his goodness, you fit all that together um, into the whole biblical narrative. When we read the the, the Testament from the Old Testament through to the end of the New Testament, what do we find? It sounds something like this. The big story of God is the story of the transcendence, the great glory and the incomprehensible, uh, uh, incomprehensible nature of God the Father. It is also the story from beginning to end of how God lovingly created the world for a purpose. And the purpose is to honor Him and love Him back by a constant remembrance of His glory, a willful submission to His Lordship, and a life of conscious spiritual service. There's a purpose to it. It is the story as the narrative goes on about how the world fell away from God and how it could not restore itself. 
and how he became involved in its recovery initially through Israel. In the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God rescued the world through his death, his resurrection, his present intercession, and the future coming in glory to reign as Lord over all creation. This is a God that we can worship and be crucified unto, can we not, and to follow? Oh my goodness. So I want to go on with the story. It, it is also the story of the continuing power and presence of God, the Holy Spirit, in the world and in his people until he comes again. That, my friends, is a God worthy of a crucified life. A life that has undergone a radical transformation. The eye has died to the material things and habits of the world, and everything is seen as an opportunity to glorify God. Money, time, possessions, even conversation is seen by the crucified life to be available for that purpose. Crucified people would rather talk about God than anything else. About how wonderful he is, how great and good he is, and how amazing it will be to someday live in his presence forever. You know, you look around the room, you realize that we're going to be friends, brothers and sisters for a long time. <laughs> a long time. Crucified people live in harmony with God because they build their lives on the same foundational unity of the perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Crucified people encourage and support and build up one another by freely sharing what they have and serving others through the exercise of their spiritual gifting. When, when what they do turns out well, they give glory to God. When the results are not uh, evident, they just keep on serving. That's a crucified life. I want to say that it's acknowledged that pursuing that kind of life is not an easy thing. A.W. Tozer is a, is a man who understood that because he lived that crucified life and wrote about it in many of his books, the principal one being called The Crucified Life. There's a pastor, James Snyder, who intensely studied Tozer's life. And he said, this message, The Crucified Life, didn't come without cost to Tozer. His friends and family often misunderstood them. He once wrote an editorial titled The Saint Walks Alone. He wrote that from experience. He said, it's easy to go along with the crowds all around us. But the one who is committed to the crucified life will always lean hard into, the, into opposition and into misunderstanding. I want to tell you too, we were talking about so many of these 17th century men who were so faithful and dedicated. You talk about Martin Luther, whose conversion was radical. And we talk about John Newton, whose conversion was radical. And we talk about some people who go down in history as radical preachers who never intended uh, to create a, Refor a, a reformation like Martin Luther, never intended to, to uh, start something new uh, like a revival, but it happened, and it happened to a man named Jonathan Edwards. I have to give a little bit of preface to Mr. Edwards. Um, when I was in seminary, there was a man who just studied him his whole life. And he made a challenge to the seminary students. He said, look, um, if you will buy both volumes of Jonathan Edwards and read them in one year, I'll buy them for you. 
And these things are huge. Uh, number eight font, two columns in every page. And uh, his, one, his one sermon, a treatise on religious affections, goes well over 100 pages. Um, so I took a look at that at the bookstore, and I thought, mm, no. <laughs> and you know what? There wasn't a single seminary student who said yes, <laughs> because, <laughs> because we've all got these books stacked up over here, right? And we've got so much reading, so much work, so many papers to write. Later. I've got a grandson that when you ask him something, and he, he doesn't say no, he just says, well, maybe later. <laughs> so I was just thinking, maybe later. Actually, it was later. I was able to buy those volumes. And uh, here it is. Wow, I don't know what, 30 years later, I can't even remember it. Decades later, I still haven't finished them. But they are unbelievably awesome works. Edwards goes down in our history, American history, as the, a, a Christian pastor, a missionary, a theologian, and he was and also a, a grandfather to Aaron Burr, who was the third vice president of the United States. Um, in, his, in Edward's progeny, he has 13 university presidents and 65 professors, among other numerous clergy. So he, he just did an amazing, he had an amazing life and ministry uh, back in the 1700s. And uh, he served his people by disciplining himself to the deep study of God's Word. Some people have said, well, he, he probably studied 13 hours a day. And I, I don't know how that's possible. Of course, we don't live in that day. Maybe it was for him, but we're talking candlelight. And, and uh, it was, just must have been a very difficult thing to accomplish that kind of deep study. His sermons were so powerful, they changed New England Congregationalism. He had a church in Massachusetts. And um, his sermons are, are, were, they changed life and congregationalism permanently, and they're still widely read today. And I want to read to you a portion of his memoirs that take up about, oh, I don't know, 20, 25% of his first volume, um, of two volumes. And in his memoirs, he described his crucified life. That's where all this was going. And he wants to describe his crucified life. Let me read it to you. He said, I claim no right to myself, no right to this understanding, this will, these affections that are in me, neither do I have any right to this body or its members, no right to this tongue, to these hands, these feet, these ears, the eyes. I have given myself away and not retained anything of my own. I have been to God this morning and told him that I have given myself wholly to him. I have given over every power so that for the future I claim no right to myself in any respect. I have expressly promised him for by his grace I will not fail. I take him as my whole portion and looking upon nothing else as any part of my happiness. His law is the constant rule of my obedience. I will fight with all of my might against the world, the flesh, and the devil to the end of my life. I will adhere to the faith of the gospel, however hazardous and difficult the profession and practice of it may be. I receive the blessed spirit as my teacher, sanctifier, and only comforter, and cherish all admonitions to enlighten, purify, confirm, comfort, and assist me. This I have done. He says, I pray God for the sake of others, to look upon this as a self-dedication and to receive me as his own. I shall act as my own 
if I ever make use of any of my powers to do anything that is not to the glory of God, or to fail to make the glorifying of him my whole and entire business, if I murmur in the least at afflictions, if I am in any way uncharitable, if I revenge my own case, if I do anything purely to please myself and omit anything because it's a great denial, if I trust to myself, if I take any praise for any good which Christ does by me, or if I am in any way proud, I act then as my own and not God's. I purpose to be absolutely his. You can see why he was such a highly respected pastor. And so, Tozer again. Whatever hinders us in our journey must be dealt a death blow. It's not an easy proposition. The cost is high. The pathway can be rough. The way forward is often lonely. But... The rewards you will gain of knowing God in intimate fellowship will be well worth the journey. I promise you. I promise you. Crucified life. I am crucified with Christ. And it is not I who live, but Christ lives in me. And this life that I now live in the flesh, I live by, say it, faith. faith. Right? In the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Well, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this um, instruction that comes from your word and from the example of so many faithful people. It would be incumbent and necessary, I think, for each of us to examine our own life. Some of us perhaps need to recommit ourselves to that great calling. Perhaps there might be somebody who needs to make that commitment for the first time in their life. This would be the time to do that. Perhaps many of us have experienced trying to do life on our own and, and we've discovered through that experience that it doesn't work so well. It works so much better when we die to self, put off the old, and we live for Christ, that new resurrected life that by the power of God enables us to become new creatures in Christ and to live that crucified life. We ask that you would um, cause, a, cause by your Holy Spirit for us to make those important decisions, these renewals or these initial commitments. We ask for this in Christ's precious name. Amen.